0: there and welcome to sip sip hooray the podcast for people who love wine but not all the snobbery that can sometimes go with it you know in our experience winemakers are an innovative bunch always pushing the boundaries in what a cluster of grapes can become today's guest knows all about innovation he spent a lifetime tinkering problem solving and asking the question how can i make things better He is a tech titan turned winemaker, and we're thrilled to chat with him today at his winery, Clos de la Tech, which is located in the mountains overlooking the Silicon Valley. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm the other
1: Mary, Mary Orlin. And if you think tech and wine don't go together, you haven't met TJ Rogers. TJ was the founder of Cypress Semiconductor, but he's also the owner and chief winemaking officer at Clédula Tech. And Clédula Tech is a blend of old world techniques and modern technology. And TJ says that you need the tech to help you understand the magic of winemaking. So we're so excited to welcome you, TJ, to our show and find out all about this magic behind the tech.
0: We are excited today to be recording inside the caves at Clo de la Tech Winery, which is located in the <clears throat> mountains of La Honda. We are up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and it overlooks an incredible scene that takes you all the way to the ocean your view is all the way to the ocean and you see fog you see trees it's redwoods it's oak it's gorgeous up here and these are massive incredible caves and we're thrilled to be joined today by T.J. Rogers the owner and vintner of La Tech and the founder of Cypress Semiconductors which is his previous career and we'll get to that too but T.J. thanks so much for being on Sip Sip Hooray
2: today. You're welcome so Yes, I'm a chip guy. I'm now a venture capitalist. And up till 2006, I made the wine. Now, Valita, my wife, is the winemaker. And uh, she took over from my, well, I would say heavy hand, but we foot Christ. So my heavy foot <coughs> and has made wines that are winning a lot more medals than, than the wines I made.
0: It's an incredible partnership. You're yes. lucky to have her. Mm-hmm.
1: So set the scene for us here. Um, describe the property.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, one it it is beautiful but i picked it for engineering reasons pinot noir is the northernmost red grape that gets ripe so you have some pinot noir that kind of gets ripe in germany way above the canadian border here the flip side is pinot noir doesn't particularly like hot weather and you go to napa they don't make good pinot noir i I don't i don't know a napa pinot noir that i really like too hot uh, too much yield too high alcohol Wine gets really thin. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay both suffer big time from dilution. They both want small crops. If you want to make really good wine, so I have a vineyard at 400 feet around my house, one acre, and I was fighting um, heat, too ripe for years. So then I found this place where it's 1,700 feet. So all of a sudden, I've got ocean fog. Gets cold every night. Fog comes in in the valleys every night, covers up part of the grapes, covers up the whole thing, and then in the morning covers up. Stays covering on the on the bottom. And and you, you you stop you stop having my worst harvest was late August down below, up here we now harvest September even October and you get you get the um, I hate I hate the trendy word hang time but you get the maturity on the grapes before the sugar forces you out of the field and that, that's what I get up here. Right,
1: and all you do is Pinot Noir. Tell us why that particular grape.
2: Um, Wisconsin born and bred, Oshkosh. Um, went to Dartmouth. Um, both places were um, beer and whiskey. And got out here, got into wine. Um, traveled every week to Napa for Sonoma. My house to, to, to Napa at that time was 85 minutes. Now it's 85 minutes to four hours, depending upon the traffic. I and, and I was really into California wine. So I, I was a student at Stanford working on my PhD. And uh, I went to a liquor store, a good one, in Menlo Park, which is right outside the, the Stanford exclusion zone. Where they've forced the local municipalities not to sell liquor. <clears throat> and uh, one of the clerks there is a very knowledgeable guy. And he said, You ought to buy some French wine. I said, Why would I buy French wine? I live in California. I, I travel to Napa. I, I travel to Sonoma. I, I love uh, California wine. He said, You ought to try some French wine. So um, my fellowship allowed for $20 wines. So I bought a case, mixed case. I had my first bottle of Louis Rotor uh, champagne, which is in this glass right here
0: <clears throat> that's what we were greeted with when we arrived today thank you
2: it's uh and i've had, i've loved it forever i went through all the wines the famous wines the white Burgundies, the, the less famous wines uh, sancerre and, and all those loire valley wines and then case number 12 bottle number 12 was uh von romany a commune wine and it was like three or four years old and it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. It's the best red wine I've ever had. I was in, uh, I was drinking the um, California cabs at that time, the you know stain your tongue black kind of cabs with that grassy kind of overtone they had. So I, I go, it's the best red wine I've ever had. So that was uh, 1971, 1972. I had read Alexis Le Wines of France, and I'm in, in Burgundy. So I'm walking around '72. I'm wearing a tie-dyed shirt, polyester pants, track shoes. And I'm walking around in Burgundy looking like, you know, I landed in a silver saucer in the back of somebody's house. (laughs) So they're all looking at the alien, speak no French, mangle their language. But unlike Paris, where they insult you for mangling their language, you're in farm country and they're very friendly. So all of a sudden they realize the alien wasn't as dumb as he looked. The alien knew that town was on He knew that vineyard was Le Beaumont, and knew that the next vineyard over was, and, and on and on. And so uh, I had a great vacation, <clears throat> and I came back here, and I said, I'm going to go wine, and it'll be Pinot Noir, and it'll be Burgundian. And that was it, and that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: And did you do it in conjunction with the semiconductor business?
2: Well, in conjunction, meaning, uh, semiconductor biz is get up, at 6 in the morning, drive to work, fight the war, come home at 8 o'clock, have three glasses of wine, and crash uh, after you've watched enough TV to kind of zonk yourself out. Uh, but then I made wine on the weekends. And my little vineyard's one acre, and it made, in this biggest year, five barrels of wine. So that was enough for a hobby, and, and Valida and I learned how to make wine on that. And then I found this place, and I had the cool environment I wanted. Nobody, this, you, you saw the hills they're very steep. They're so steep, it's very difficult to walk on our workers. We actually buy uh, soccer cleats for them, football cleats, so they they can uh, have traction. <clears throat> and we, we hand farm. So nobody wanted the land for farming. So I, I bought this incredible piece of land, the first 180 acres for 800,000 bucks, Believe it or not. Wow. And we and we hand planted and, and started in on it.
0: So you like a challenge? Because I mean, that that hillside
2: the challenge I was ready for, because it is a viticulture challenge, uh, I'd already learned about making wine, and Pinot Noir is really easy to screw up. So learning to make wine, I have a chemistry degree. I read the American Journal of oenology and Viticulture. I read the Australian uh, uh, Journal of Grape and Wine Research. I've read them for 15 years. I've read those journals longer than I read the transactions on electron devices when I was getting my PhD so I understand that I work with Davis I fund research projects so I understood how to make wine and I made the classic mistakes um I found out how to grow lactobacillus all you do is run your fermentation at a pH of four and that'll do it for you um I, I learned how to extract too much tannin in my 1997 where I had these beautiful grapes that were uh sugar ripe but they'd grown very fast and all the tannins in them were green bitter horrible tannins so that was a washout. That wine never made it to the market. But starting in, in 2000, 1996, I lucked out. I made one barrel of wine. It was great. I still, it still drinks well. 2000, I started making good wine. Then I had to get colder, so I went up. When you go up in California, you're in hills, and then I and then I wasn't going to pay $20 million for, for a flat piece of land on, or a slope, so I bought a hilly piece of property. I didn't show you this when we were out there, but I had to buy build a tractor, a custom tractor. You've seen in the Mosel River where the tractors uh, are on cables, right? And I went to that company and I had them build a tractor on cables mm-hmm. for these hills. Difference being, instead of being between the row tractor like the Mosel tractors, it was over the row tractor and on cables. No way. Yeah, it's it, wow. it's a it's an absolutely amazing device. And
1: how did you, that vision come to you <laughs> of that you that was what you needed for this your vineyards?
2: Yeah,
0: how'd you dream that up?
2: Well. I got here and I, I, personally walked up the hills. And you walk up that hill once, you've had it. For what is,
1: day. what is the grade on that
0: hill?
2: The grades here um, on the slope you came in are about about thirty five percent, but they're they're over fifty percent in other parts of the vineyard. So you really need some sort of machine. If you okay, you can do two acres, or five acres, any way you want. But if you really want to farm it, you need something to do it—a a machine to help you out. So then um, I read about it. And I've looked at Germany. So those big rivers the Rhine and Mosul, they have very steep banks, but they're flat. And then the way they do it is they run a tractor on a road halfway up, and they have a a coil. And the guy wears a a harness, and the coil lets him down, and he's got a backpack with a sprayer or whatever, and he comes up the hill. And that's how they farm, by hand, but they have to be pulled up and down the hills. So I went there, and one of the companies had made a tractor. So they made a thing that looked like a go-kart, and... I I said, I wanted, it's called Clements, and I I, I wanted that. And then he said, great. And I said, but he said, how wide is your planting? I said, meter by meter, very short. And he said, well, our grapes are 1.6 meters. So buy the cart, and then you'll plant them farther apart, right? And he said, no, they're planted. So I said, I need to make a narrow cart. Then he went through a long explanation of why he couldn't do it. So I said, okay, I'll take the wide one. And he said, okay. And he said, so you're going to plant them wider? I said, no, they're already planted. I'm going to take your cart. I'm going to take a laser, I'm going to cut a stripe out of the middle, weld it back together when I get back to California. As you do. And, well, he <laughs> said, he said, okay, 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 I'll build what you want. So he built me a custom <laughs> Oh, Fantastic. <laughs> Bert That's Clemens. So
0: I just love that, that notion that if you see a challenge or a problem, your mind goes to the fix and the, you know, like, what can I innovate? And you've done that all over this winery.
2: It's more than that. What is it? If you live here. Being unafraid of problems is good, and there are people all over the country. The thing that differentiates Silicon Valley is that we look for problems. We look for things that are hard to do. We look for things that have never been done before. We look for big fat companies that have so much money. There's no possible way you could take them out. Think Ampex when I came to California. Have you ever heard of them lately? Of course, yeah. And and, and, I used to hear and what that. you do is you you. Look for a disruption in what's changing, and then you work on that. And then you make something happen that other people didn't think could happen. That's how you win in Silicon Valley.
0: And is that how you win in the wine world, too?
2: Well, so far, I'm very proud of the wine. I'm very proud of the vineyard. And let's just say I keep my financials confidential because they got brackets on the bottom line, and they've had for 20 years now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Many people say that Pinot is a heartbreak grape because it is so finicky. But finicky is a term you don't like to use. You have something different. What is that?
2: I call it the, the grape that respects or follows terroir. And it's a headstrong grape as well. That is, trying to force it to do what you want it to do to make a style you want doesn't work. And the old concept, the French concept of terroir, is exactly what it's about. I, I have had heartbreaks with Pinot. I, I lost I made one barrel in 1996. It was good. I lost my 97. And I lost my 98. 97 to tan and 98 to uh, lactobacillus. And in 99, even uh, I had I had an asparagus-y compound in there. So I, I learned natural winemaking, foot crushing, native yeast, um, no no extremes, no machines, nothing. Actually, is more reproducible and not, uh, way less finicky than I I, I don't have a destemmer. I have a distemmer now that is not used, and every three or four years when we have super bad weather and we have like five grapes on a cluster, I'll take that part of the vineyard and I'll take the grapes off that. But bottom line, our, 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 I like high-tech. I watch the wines with high-tech. I have high-tech visibility on what goes on. But my fermenters are plain vessels with no holes in them, foot-crushing, uh, and. Uh, natural control of temperature using the fermentation itself to the maximum heat, the whole the whole thing. Um and I and I don't intervene and if you look at my process, it comes from 1830. There was a guy named Ouvrard who was the uh, rome what then was called La Romane and, and later called La Romane Conti. Um I made wine. <clears throat> and it was just well he had no choice, right? If you don't have it a stemmer, you don't distempt and, and if you don't have a pump, you use Gravity Flow. So we use Gravity Flow, all of that. And that, and we small fermenters. We had to because we had tiny vineyards. Then we decided we kind of liked it because every fermenter is like different kid. You know, you got a red-haired girl. You've got, got a blind-haired boy. They're different, and, and, and they, they, don't, they shouldn't be. But that's what Pinot Noir is. It, it's very changeable. And if you allow that change to express itself, then when it comes time to put together your your blends, then you have a palette that's really amazing.
0: Fantastic! You walked us around um, inside the barrel room and cave and stuff, and you were showing us some of your uh, innovative ways that you have simplified what you're doing. You've increased efficiency. You've kept it oh um, pure. You know, you're not adding uh, anything strange to it. You're you're doing a pure process, but you've simplified some of it in a really modern way can you explain some of the stuff you've done and maybe your your tj um fermenter yeah
2: well the um the first the first thing i did was i made stainless steel fermenters and um i didn't i saw these big contraptions they sold in napa 20 feet tall and all kinds of attachments and ports and everything. I looked at what I thought. I had lost my, uh, I had a, a lactobacillus infection and I just thought clean and simple is better. So my fermenters are pots. <clears throat> they are just exactly the size of a half barrel uh, and they a barrel of wine. Um, they have no penetrations, no valves, no cleaning ports, anything like that. They're small enough, you just uh, clean them out, wash them down put the grapes in. Uh, I don't do crushing, I do foot crushing, that's another innovation. Well, it's not an innovation, obviously, since it was done a long time ago, but I brought that back. And by the way, there's chemical, chemistry reasons why that's really the right way to do it, and stem-redu crushers are really not the right way to do it. And I've done experiments on that, and I I, I much more enjoy foot-crushed wine. Um, Then I think the biggest innovation is pressing, where that was about labor, So I was talking about my own labor, and I wasn't willing to spend two weeks pressing fermenters. So uh, I invented the press. It's really, the concept is there. Take the Melior Melior coffee pot. You've got the glass coffee pot, the plunger. You put in the grounds, you put in the water, and then you plunge and press the grounds against the bottom. So I just made a Melior coffee pot, you know, that was 12 feet tall and weighs 18 tons. And you can put an entire fermenter in it, and it presses down, presses the... um, pumice to the bottom of the fermenter, and then I, I do all gravity processing. I siphon off the top of the fermenter down to the barrel room, which is 12 feet lower. Uh, I have a port for the hose through the wall. So it's all gravity, and that is the biggest change. And that press and its gentleness on grapes, uh, you, don't have, you don't have to climb in the fermenter. You don't have to shovel. I then can take the fermenter and simply turn it upside down with a forklift and dump uh, the pumice out of it, take a hose, and I'm ready to reuse the fermenter. So that, that's the biggest one. But again, there's nothing touching the wine. Say it differently. A grape today versus a grape in 1830 in that vineyard in France, only difference it could say it saw was to touch stainless steel instead of wood. Other than that, it, it doesn't touch anything different.
1: After you developed and started using that press, Describe the difference in the wines you made before and after. Did was there an obvious difference?
2: Before, I face a conundrum that all winemakers face. So, you, I did, I did have those fermenters. I can actually show you down in my antique section in one of my caves. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have ports and you have valves, uh, ports on the bottom. So you hook up a hose and you do uh, press. Your, your um, free run comes out. Okay, so that's fine. That's your great wine. It is what it is for the year then you've then you've got the pumice in the bottom so you open up the port and you rake it out and you put it in the press then you hop in the press you got your boots on you're stepping on seeds that's bad um, you then press it that that takes a long time by hand especially for me with a, a small press and then the press wine is heavy oftentimes bitter and many times astringent it's, it's different it's not as good okay, then you either throw away a quarter of your wine or make a lower grade wine or, or find the wine to get the tannin out of it. You gotta do something. <clears throat> so I, I suffered with that for years. And then the idea of the Melior coffee pot, I had that idea, big scale Melior coffee pot. And I, mm-hmm. I tried it, I had one built. That one is sitting outside in the first one. And it's all these little experiments are giant pieces of stainless steel, custom made in Silicon Valley, they're, they're expensive. But in that one I did an experiment where I pressed pressed the wine. A very light pressing would be like 0.3 bars. People brag about that. I pressed the wine from 0.1 bars, bar being 14.5 psi, all the way up to 3 bars, which would be an extremely heavy press. And I took I took fractions from each pressing, and I and of course they were pressed wines, so they were they were tough young wines. But I didn't get any I didn't get any worse wine uh, from from the pressing. So that pressed wine once you never take the pumice out of the fermenter, push it gently to the bottom, then squeeze it to get the wine out of it. it does not deliver ugly wine the way the transfer of the pumice into a different press does. So now I don't even think about it. I, every is every a barrel, it's got pressed wine, it's got free run, they don't ever mix, ever. And uh, that's what we do.
0: And your process is so much more efficient.
2: In right opinion. now we do a barrel, we can press a barrel every like 25 minutes. And, and press a fermenter, rather, every 25 minutes. And uh, that's more like a half day when you're dealing with fermenters and taking out the pumice. Now, if you go to a big winery in Napa, they'll have big fermenters. They'll have their press on railroad tracks, and they'll move it back and forth. Uh, but this is so much simpler, and it's it's uh, not industrial. That That's the thing I like about it.
0: So some of your stuff uh, they're using up at UC Davis. Can you talk to us about your relationship with Davis and, and some of the stuff that the students there are using?
2: Sure. Um, well, I, I got involved with UC Davis. When I was reading, so I started reading Journal of Enology and Viticulture. And one of the first articles I read actually in a, in a popular magazine, Wine Mag, was um, about potassium bitartrate and precipitation of potassium bitartrate. tartrate. So I'm a chemist and I, I got the chemistry, but I... I didn't understand the practical...
1: And what is potassium by tartrate?
2: Okay, so you got the main acid in grapes is tartaric acid. It's a four-carbon acid with two acid groups on it, and it's a pretty potent acid. And then malic is the other, a second one. So when tartaric acid is hydrogen, H2, tartrate, potassium bitartrate. when you go in solution, you can have the two hydrogens get replaced, one by potassium and one by bi, that's the hydrogen. So one potassium replaces one hydrogen. And then you get potassium bitartrate. It is barely soluble. And what happens is it throws white crystals. So a lot of times you have to go through a, a process where you cool down the wine to get rid of those crystals. Cold
1: stabilization. Right, right.
2: And now for red wine, it's not that important. You typically can get rid of it. White wine it's a big deal. Anyway, I read my first paper ever on that topic. So I called up a professor at Davis, a guy named Dr. Roger Bolton. So I dialed his number picked up the telephone and said, hello, I'm okay, this is working. pretty (laughs) So far so good. (laughs) And he talked to me for 90 minutes. He's a chemist, he's a chemical engineer, he's good. So I put that in the back of my head, this is a good school and their charter is to help um, winemakers. And they really do. So then I interacted with them, I made some donations to them, I joined their advisory board, then I got a phone call. They, They wanted to take me to dinner. So when you run a company, when you somebody calls you to take you to dinner, what that means is I want to give you money, and, and, and I will pay for dinner unless you agree to pay for dinner, then I'll take the money and the dinner. <laughs> and, and they went there, and they were building a new winery, and they had, they had been making their wine in five-gallon carboys. So I had, I had my fermenters, and they were working well for me, and I had my press and all that. And my, my fermenters at one barrel for the small ones and four barrels for the big ones, still right for me for handmade Pinot Noir, but they're too big for them. So I made my fermenters for them, 152 of them in 55-gallon drum size, so that I could use all this infrastructure of, of rollers, dollies that hold 55-gallon drums, etc. But they have they have my fermenters, and no no penetration. It's the whole thing. Uh, they wanted pump over. I do push down. So I gave them a, a, I invented a pump over system for them. They wanted to measure bricks real time, which I hadn't been doing. I I, I did it the old-fashioned way. And I made a real-time bricks meter for them, all, all hooked up to a radio, all broadcasting to one station. I, I made the central state. I had engineers and a real electronics company making this stuff. So you can walk into their control room and see little postage stamps graphs of 152 fermenters and what stage you're in, how much sugar's left in the must, what the temperature of the must is, what the temperature of the cap is, what temperature of the Jacket, they have jackets on them for temperature control, all of that.
0: That had to be a game changer up there because, you know, like you said, you could have written a check for a million dollars or something, but by building that equipment for them, you changed what they were able to do and the way the students are learning about the winemaking process.
2: And I can tell you that the, the the big thing for me is that I've had at least 100 times a professor student come up to me and say, you totally changed what we can do. We can do experiments now with control such that we can do experiments that we couldn't even do before. And then, by the way, uh, Washington State hit me up. Oh,
0: they did. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the word Lord got out. out. <laughs> so,
2: so there's there's two, um, two of them in the country that, that have them.
0: So great. And I bet there's students chomping at the bit to become an intern here and learn more from you.
2: Every year, um, one of their students now, the experiments we tend to do are a little bit beyond Wine 101 where you're, you know, senior and you're learning how to make wine or sophomore um, these are their graduate students so they come here so yeah they what I've got is a lot of fermenters I have a real production winery Um, given that I have a a reasonably high capacity a couple thousand cases that means they can do real experiments you know like three barrels per experiment make real wine I never let them do something bizarre um, but they they can do experiments where they control the fermentation for example, last year was they're working on a chemical thing. Every fluid has something called reduction oxidation potential, redox potential. And they came here and they, they control that. You control that by adding air or oxygen. And they came here and they controlled that in some fermenters. And they had different levels. And then they compared the wine that they got from it.
1: And have any of the experiments that they've done here with you yielded any results that you've adopted?
2: I will adopt the redox potential stuff. Um, I'm not a pump over. I'm not a pump guy, so I won't use their pump over. I've done experiments. Um, I, I developed a hyper efficient pump over system for them that could be retrofit on any fermenter. <clears throat> but I've done experiments with pump over versus push down. And uh, push down, foot crush slash push down. And I, I, I like the wine better. Now, again, I did the experiments for a couple of years. I did multiple barrels on both sides of the equation. I tasted the wine uh, at after fermentation, then a year later, and then two years later. So it did real tasting with real quantitative tasting. Um, but we, we, we wouldn't use, we don't like pump over. Um,
1: so for... Regular wine drinkers, what what was the difference you tasted between punch down and pump, pump over? Pump over, thank you.
2: Okay, so um, to, to define those two terms, um, when wine ferments, <clears throat> you're forming a lot of carbon dioxide in the must. So if you think about think about a fermenter, this chest high and four feet in diameter, that's the volume of your fermenter. During fermentation, you'll form over 40 times that volume of carbon dioxide. 4-0, so there's a huge flow of carbon dioxide. And then what that carbon dioxide does is it gets into the crushed grapes, and it lifts them up like a raft. And they're really and they get hard and they get hot. So they're they're standing a foot on top of the uh, must, and then they're breaking down in the hot carbon dioxide, and that's releasing the color and tannin. So what you do in push down is you, you take, it's like a shovel that's been turned sideways, it's flat. And you take, you, you take it and you submerge that cap. And when it gets wet, that washes off the tan and color. And, and you do that, you can do it anywhere from zero to, I've never done it more than three times a day. Two times a day is plenty. All right. The other way to do it, which is more automated, because then if you have 40 fermenters, every morning you stop 40 times, push down 40 caps, come back. So in the in the winemaking industry they do pump over we'll have a pump they'll pump from the bottom of the tank and then spray it over the top and wash down uh, the tannin and and color the anthocyanin color into, into the wine and that's pump over what do I what do I detect difference I got a lot more um, off smells in the bouquet when we did pump over um, but, but and by the way pump over is good in one way if you aerate the wine which you need to. That takes care of aeration. If you do push down, you actually have to aerate the wine also. <clears throat> but but we, we just didn't, uh, there. it was not about better, worse wine, but it was about more wine that was off in some way, with pump over them with push down.
0: So about purity, really. Um, I think I read that you were also, speaking of innovations and stuff, that you were using drones to help you in the vineyard. Can you tell us about that?
2: Sure. So drones are the new big thing, right? And in my case, you look at the vineyard. You walk up a hill once, thousand feet, and that's your day. So, think about a guy with a back deck trying to spray. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't use machinery to spray. And so, the idea we're thinking of is, can we use a drone to spray? So, we have these guys that could do surveying with drones, and we got, and they, they could take pictures with drones. So you could look at uh, uh, signals from the vineyard, infrared signals, stuff like that, and look for dry area stuff like that. You can find a Z. So. Flying a drone over your vineyard and getting pictures is the first thing. And the deal was that the drone company we worked with was autonomous, that is, they could program a drone, this is a vineyard, this is a row, looks like, you fly down that row, you fly all the way bottom, you turn around and come back, and you zigzag till you're out of energy, then you go land on the truck. And it they had a little landing pad, like a helicopter pad in the back of a mm-hmm. pickup truck. So that was one. That's okay, we have got guys in the vineyards all the time, you need a drone to find out there's something screwed up with your grapes you've got a problem to begin with so our guys are really good at seeing things um, weeks or at least many days in advance we want those spraying and then now all of a sudden you're thinking look what a spraying unit looks like it looks like a tractor it's got a big tank on the back it's got a sprayer it's a rube goldberg device so the idea was, can we spray with drones? Because now we had drones that could reproducibly make their way back and forth, even through very steep rows. So, um,
0: but could they spray?
2: So what they did, they these guys are good. They, they had the tank, they left it on the ground, they put a pump on the tank, and then they just they had a very thin hose that went up to the drone. And the drone was strong enough to pull this hose, long enough, mm-hmm. and that hose is long enough that they had range. So then, then, then they would. Put the tank at the bottom of at the top of say four rows. Run back and forth and get four rows. Then move the tank forward and go back and forth. So you got one guy with a little aircraft controller uh, uh, and who moves the tank and and does the spraying. And all of a sudden you got one guy doing spraying on a significant number of acres. That that saves a lot of money. And the sprayer the high pressure spray we can use um, covers better than hand spray.
1: And it's got to be safer, I would think, and better for the guys who are working in the vineyards the the folks who are doing that work. And, um, it seems like you could, the spraying would be more um, precise versus the other method. It, it is
2: local and it's a small plume. Um, they need it, to get
0: one of those for the like California wildfires, like a water drone.
2: <laughs> that's, that's a, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm sure somebody's working on that. Take a, <laughs> it, but it, you know TJ,
0: <laughs> you might be the guy, you might be what they need.
2: <laughs> in, in our case, um, we use all, um, I believe, Class A, I think, is the least um, invasive. Of, uh, there's Class A, B, and Z, and I, I don't know mm-hmm. if it's A or C, but there's one group of chemicals that includes water that is GRAS, generally recognized as safe. Mm-hmm. And we tend to use only chemicals from that category. So, for example, um, potassium carbonate, cousin of baking soda, mm-hmm. will, t- will do in mildew. So we're not, well, I'm not too worried about, about the plume. I'd stand under one of them uh, with the mm-hmm. stuff we use. Actually, a water rinse is sometimes used as well. Yeah. The other one we do use, we use uh, the other chemical I'll use. I'll use a chemical which, has, um, which is strong, let me use that word, but it has a biological half-life of a day or less. and that, that, So that one, you, you're putting on something you wouldn't want to rub on your skin, mm-hmm. uh, but it, 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 it goes on and goes away and does its job. So those are the two we use. So uh, the main the main thing is the labor saving and the uh, actually use less chemicals. You have a smaller plume uh, than, than if you're doing it the other way.
1: So it's another thing that you use to be more efficient.
2: Yes. Well, this is a mandate. I mean, forget the controversy um, of the Mexican border. Fact is, if you go into any field in, in the California, uh mexican-americans or mexicans who aren't mexican-americans yet uh make our food Mm -hmm. and they're going to for a lot of reasons uh, they're going to get tired of the bs we're putting them through um we we, you have to start doing stuff Uh, and, and to me robots um robots are dumb you know this artificial intelligence and all of that robots are dumb so they only do the dumbest job. And the point is, if I can get a robot to do a job, a human shouldn't be doing that job anyway, because it's not a good job. So that that's what we do. Um, and we we still got a crew of uh, 19 up here.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, listening to you today and walking around and looking at all the stuff you've created, I kept thinking, I wonder what you were like as a kid. Were you that kid, like, taking apart the television or the car and trying to figure out how stuff works, and where have you always been this inventor spirit or this, you know really problem-solving spirit?
2: In retrospect, yes. I remember the time I was, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade, and um, my mother came in, she had a singer- sewing machine, and I was working with it, and I said, "Come here over and watch this." So our singer-sewing machine was running full blast, and the needle was going up and down, but then the needle was going almost it stopped and then it started going backwards as you were watching it. And what I had was uh, two uh, two very strong lights. Uh, they were called sun guns. They were, uh, in that day, a very powerful floodlight. And I had them behind an aluminum uh, disc, and I had holes in the disc. So basically, the disc would come around, and the sun guns would line up with the disc, and they'd light up the sewing machine, and then they'd turn off. So it was a strobe light. It was a homemade strobe <laughs> light. And, and and so that was, okay, That that that's not big science. <laughs> what but, did your mom say? Well... Her concern was the that machine? in order in order to run the disc, right, I needed to rotate it. And it was heavy. It was a piece of aluminum was so three feet in diameter. So you gotta have motor for that. So I, I needed a motor like right now. <clears throat> so it it wasn't really unreasonable for me to take the vacuum cleaner apart and use the motor <laughs> out of it to run the sun gun uh, strobe light. <laughs>
0: Probably wrecking her sewing machine and vacuum cleaner in one.
2: <laughs> uh, so, uh, I still I own my my house in Oshkosh, and that old sewing machine sits in my living room oh, as we speak.
0: Is
1: it still great. functional?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great.
1: <laughs> cool. So um, you have three different vineyards. I'd love for you to tell us about each one of them. And we've got three wines, and I think we should start tasting a little.
2: Okay, vineyard one is... Uh, Domaine du Dr. Rogers, named modestly after me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there, there's, there was a winemaker in France named Dr. Barlet. He was an MD, and he's very famous. He made wines from the 20s through the 50s. And if you're a burgundy collector, which I am, Dr. Barlet wines were a big find. Mm. So I, I named that after his label, Domaine du Dr. Rogers. That's my one-acre vineyard in uh near my house that's the one at 400 feet where i fight rightness mm-hmm. uh, it's the oldest vineyard i put it in i planted it in 94 and uh it makes the biggest wine it's a beautiful yeah.
1: bottle it is beautiful
2: so we uh we can give that one a try
0: and so let's mary describe the bottle well uh i actually i'd rather uh-huh. tj tell me what are we looking at in the picture here
2: well that okay the labels the knockoff of uh classic french label so that that etching is kind of like you see on Bordeaux. that's my winery in my backyard that's what I thought. so i made a nice little stone winery in in the backyard the label the and first by time, little you mean
0: huge <laughs> well
2: it's a, it's a thousand square foot print, footprint and two floors okay now the label has got the mm-hmm. rounded corners and the highlights around it mm-hmm. that label first time i showed it to a bear volane he looked at mm-hmm. it and said mm. very similar he said and i go yeah you know because i copied your label his label is black and white like that one with green highlight. Mine's black and white with a burgundy highlight. And we should say
1: it. for folks who aren't familiar with that label shape that that's Romani Conti.
2: Yes yes. Beautiful
0: and you added something special. Well, yeah
2: the the other the other thing I added um was a chip so with um, a
0: nod back to Cypress.
2: Well the Okay, all the burgundies, they have names, a lot of them have names, Clo, Claude, Claude de Bourgeois, Claude de L'ombre. So I used the word Claude to indicate I'm making Pinot Noir, and it's French style. Then I had to have something that was me, so I'm a technologist, right? So I called the thing Claude La Tech. Then I tried, I was going to copy Mouton Rothschild. So if you know Chateau Mouton Rothschild, uh, Baron Philippe Rothschild put new art on that label every year. Right. So I think I do that. My art is blueprint for a chip. Now these chips are ten of them could fit across your thumbnail, but the blueprint for a chip is very much more complex. I mean, more than ten times more complex than the blueprint for the Empire State Building. Yeah, wow. And they're 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 the blueprints are viewed on computer screens, but a lot of times engineers like to do printout. So they will um, they will print out these things, lay them on the floor in, in a big room, and then they'll they'll. They look at things for, for the layout of the chip. This, we're now going back to, to 1985-ish time frame. Today, computers look at it. Human eyes don't need to touch it. Anyway, these chips are high tech, so I had a contest in our, in our company every year. The best chip, we made about 40 new chips a year, typically memories and, and microcontrollers, small computers, would be on the crest of my bottle. So I put on burgundy sealing wax to match the color on the label. And I put on a chip, and then on the back, I did one sentence, okay, oh, so this, I left Cyprus, I retired, and this is the first chip after I retired, so I said, this chip is a 21% efficient solarious solar cell that produces a 400-watt pure black solar panel design to turn roofs into power-generating assets. So actually, this is the first time I didn't use a semiconductor chip. I, well, this is a semiconductor, but I used the solar chip. So, you know, I, the one when I retired, the last one, this I can claim is the only bottle of wine in history ever that had one billion transistors and uh, in, in sealing wax on the, on the <laughs> shoulder of the bottle.
1: So this is the 2015 vintage.
2: Yeah, we we, um, release, um, this is our latest release, we release five years in arrears. That's because if you want to make important Pinot Noir, it's raspy. I mean, who would ever think, take Lafitte, take uh, any good Burgundy, who would ever drink a two-year-old one of them? You Mm -hmm. you know, you get, I'm sure there's a crime associated to that, infanticide (laughs) of some sort in France. So um, in in America, they won't tolerate uh, raspy young wine. So I either have to make, uh, wine is light and ready to go two years, which to me I find trivial. Or you got to you got to eat it and hold your own wine. So we yeah. release wine five years in arrears.
1: Nice, this is
0: beautiful. Oh, wow, it's a really lovely wine.
1: It is. And you said this is the wine that's biggest in terms of style, flavors, tannins.
2: Yeah, th- th- this wine has got a kind of a monolithic profile. its is, it's got I t- I taste like a black fruit in it the tannins are classic pinot noir tannins they're flat uh, fat and mouth-filling and they're not astringent and they're not bitter and that's what gives pinot noir its body but also the cousins their cousins the seed tannins uh in the young wines are are not pleasant and and that's why we hold the wine and and then this particular wine and what do you get on the bouquet there
1: i get some spice i was gonna say almost a little licorice Mm -hmm.
2: i always get i always get clove this is the particular spice i think of and then in this wine, I don't smell exactly right now. There's usually a little bit of, um, um, like, spearmint or eucalyptus in the background, mm-hmm. a little, little bit. Exactly. And then high acidity, that's Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's what goes wrong with Pinot Noir in hot climate. It, you, you lose your acidity.
0: Mm. Oh, right. It gets flattened out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too warm. I'm always curious how winemakers know that a young wine that's, as you described it, you know, tannic and, you know, tight – they can tell still that five years down the road, it's going to be beautiful like this one. I I just, I, that fascinates me that they can taste the elements that need to be there and see it five. It's like picturing your child five years older, you know, and and it's, that's a hard thing to do.
2: <laughs> well, uh, my wife is a, uh, so-called super taster. That is, she's genetically different. The 30% of the population are super tasters. I'm not, oh, I <laughs> and I'm also a 73-year-old ordinary palate. <laughs> but in my case, I just ignore the tannin. I let it hammer me. Okay, fine. And uh, what I find is in the young wines that bouquet is there. Mm. Again, there's there's multiple elements of bouquet. Um, the ones that form later, the um, the so-called esters that are fruit acid combined with alcohol. They're not there yet. Uh, fruity ones, but the, uh, there's a group of compounds called isoprenoids. They're nine carbon compounds, and they're hyper pungent. and they're there. Um, they're there after a year, and you can really smell them. Uh, so it, it, uh, to me, the ultimate winery, you can tell there's bouquet, going to be bouquet, is Barbaresco. Barbaresco can be horribly astringent tannin Mm -hmm. up front but you smell that bouquet and you say five years from now it's going to be a killer wine
0: (laughs)
1: wow that's that's amazing
0: that's a beautiful wine i you know i'd like to know a little bit more about um your wife and her winemaking and she didn't start out as a winemaker am i correct
2: my wife her last project in her direct employment was to make a 4 million bit static random access high-speed memory at Cypress Semiconductor. Wow. And in 2000, and we were together at that time, in 2000, I realized I had enough money in this business that no longer was a weekend hobby. I wasn't doing justice to it. And gee, there were weekends I felt like going to Green Bay and watching a game and not doing that. <laughs> <clears throat> and they both happened in the fall. So um, I asked her if she wanted to stop working and mm-hmm. run our wineries and our, in our vineyards. And, um, I got an interesting answer. It was she would be glad to do that, but she was worried that somehow I'd find her less interesting if she weren't a chip designer anymore. <laughs> She's got a degree in electrical engineering from Berkeley. So we uh, we started making wine together. I call myself the um, CTO, chief technical officer, chief winemaking officer. So uh, she comes to me all the time. We, we look at that we make wine old-fashioned doesn't mean we don't know exactly what's in the wine all the time. Right. So we spend way too much money in laboratories. We have our own laboratory, and we really, really track the wine well. And now after a bunch of years, we know what has to be where, when. So I do that, and I, I advise her. And, and then she's, again, super taster. So they exist in the old days. So the idea that you know, now we've got all the science and we're going to make better wine. Not really. What we're going to do is we're going to not make bad wine as often. Mm-hmm. But I'll guarantee you that, that people lived in the 1800s. They had their blockbuster years and they made great wines in those years. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where the terroir came from, where, where certain pieces of land over the years produced wine and blew you away all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's still true. And that's why I won't um, use uh, I'll use industrial level processing to try to make a uniform wine. And, and what's amazing is you go to those barrels from the same year, you can go to barrels that were, like I said, 50, uh, 50 feet apart and taste those wines, and they're all different. And, and, they're, and they're all made the same way, and they're all made with not the same French clones, but they're made with uh, NTOB-certified French clones that pay an extra buck a vine for, for uh, the fact that these are certified genetically Burgundian vines, and they're all French rootstock. And, and the wines are so very different if you just leave them alone. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I love that you guys have this partnership, that you can share this and work together and not make each other crazy doing it. You know, (laughs) you work well as a team, both in technology, obviously, and now in winemaking. It's beautiful.
1: And um, as we were walking through your caves, we also met another member of your team (laughs) who plays a very important role, hunting gophers. (laughs) His
2: his name is Luca. Um, Found on the street, I just found out today was always kind of a, a tough little dog that you're worried you're going to get bit if you, you know, reach down too fast. And uh, he, found his, he found his niche up here hunting gophers. And we've got, we're in the hills, we've got a lot of gophers.
1: It's gopher country. He stays busy, huh? <laughs> well, should we try another wine? Yes. The wine we're tasting next is?
2: The second wine is um, Kotsud from this vineyard. That's my mother's picture on there. Oh, okay. it is? And that is the best um, wine from this vineyard. And here. Kotsud is a block? Cozut is the stripe that is in the Romane conti position on my south-facing slope, and it runs the whole length of the vineyard all the way up. Okay. Okay, so the domain Louis Louis you're drinking is a stripe of land. It's on a very steep hill, and it's in a little um, sort of knee on the hill where the slope isn't that steep, not on the top, not on the bottom. So it's like in the same position on, on my south-facing slope is uh, Romane conti the town of one romane is in... Um, in, in Burgundy, and it, it has a, it's a lighter body, higher acidity, black fruit uh, kind of wine that is uh, very Burgundian, and th- and that's, that's the wine from this vineyard. So the wine from my vineyard is bigger, fatter, fruitier, and more tannic. This one's leaner, black fruit.
1: And Lois Louise
0: is?
2: Oh, Lois Louise Rogers is my mother. So she... Um, it's
0: a beautiful picture of her. It,
2: that picture was taken in 1946. She had just finished world war ii she was um mustering out of um the army air force she was an instructor in radio electronics was she really wow. yeah.
0: oh my goodness that <laughs> apple didn't fall far oh. now
2: no, what's interesting is in that she mustered out of uh, the army air force camp mccoy wisconsin she was from wisconsin oshkosh is where she was, was born and that's where i was born and that's where my home still my mm-hmm. Old home still is. At that, she met my dad, who's from Alabama. He had no high school education. He went to war a week after Pearl Harbor. He was in the Pacific for five years, and uh, was an airplane pilot. He flew C-47, the cargo plane, the one, the cargo plane of World War II, the two-engine Douglas uh, airplane. Couldn't be two more unlike people than, than those two. Yeah, I I, I picked up her, her genes, said that, that's for sure. And so I named this vineyard after her
0: a beautiful wine and a lovely tribute tribute. yeah absolutely should we try that that last bottle absolutely
2: this wine is the main Valida, the second um second attempt to get higher and therefore colder because pinot noir likes that and um this is the wine that's directly on the adjacent hill to ridge montebello and it's on a sand vineyard um very tricky to water I have to water, like, if, if if our typical watering might be two gallons every other week per plant. And you can't even put on two gallons in the sandy soil. It goes right through it. So you have to water the two gallons in three chunks in order to uh, get it used by the plant and not just disappear. Uh, this wine is uh, high in aromatics also. It is. High in acidity. This one's got a lot of fruit in your ar- aromatics as well.
1: I also feel that this has the most texture of the wines.
2: When all said and done, I got this big fancy vineyard, and I love it. But when I sneak downstairs at night and I want a glass of wine, Domaine Valida is the one I, I usually get.
0: Oh, <laughs> and why is that?
2: And this is only three and a half acres, so very limited uh, supply of this wine.
0: Why does this one speak to you?
2: First, it's got crisp acidity. This is a California wine, so it's got more fruit than a burgundy has. But it's not, you know, the fruits I don't like, you know, people talk about cherry, strawberry. I don't like those for Pinot Noir, I like Black fruit. I like black currant, blackberry. It's got dark fruit to it, and the, and that that goes with the acidity, and then it's got the big big aromatics to it. So that that's why this wine uh, is the one I like to drink. Uh, also, it's a good. It's not a food wine. Most people use. I don't like the term food wine. What it says is my wine's too tannic. So please eat protein and do finding in your mouth.
0: <coughs> <laughs> It'll mellow it out. It's <laughs> yeah. Fine right. Right. In your uh, mouth. Uh, that, the, okay. it, you
2: know the the uh, the the, uh, the beef you'll eat with it will keep it from tearing out your tongue. <laughs> This is a food wine in the sense that this goes really well with a lot of foods. It's good after the food. It cleans out your mouth, and, 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 and it goes back and forth well with food.
0: Well, and then there's the name <laughs> and the tribute to your beautiful wife. <laughs> that has to be part of the draw. I
1: find this wine be very lively in my mouth. Mm-hmm.
2: It is. And that, that's the acidity, and, and you notice on the label, um, that's picture of the vineyard. And you can see the snow. Yes. So this vineyard is at 2,300 feet, and it gets snow. Uh, every time it gets, every few years in California, we'll get six-inch dump of snow in that vineyard. Mm-hmm. So that, and then that coolness is what Pinot Noir likes. Pinot Noir doesn't like uh, Napa, doesn't like a low-altitude, high-heat California. That's gorgeous. They all are.
1: Now, you said you hold your vintages back five years, but I was also reading that you have another program called LaCache, where you are, are you, uh, you? have um, wines that are at least 10 years old.
2: Yes, we, um, we decided to sell. First of all, we gave it to our friends, and we decided to sell it to our friends, and we started building our wine list. And, and in most years, we had some wine left. Not a lot, but pick a number. 50 cases of wine left. So those bins back there those are all years going back to um 2000. And uh you know I, I always I always to me it uh, burgundy I don't think at all about having a burgundy that's 20 30 40 years old if it's a, m- a big vineyard. I don't think um I'm I'm going to have a wine as tired and sherry yeah. at all. So that was one of my goals and that that of course is acidity in burgundy and then Tannin and Bordeaux, but the combination of acidity and tannin and burgundy is what gives them longevity, and then, of course, all the other stuff bouquet it just gets better, bigger, mellower, and then they get that super smoothness that only burgundy can do where where you go that wine's not just smooth it's that uh, i I've, I've read the term oily meaning it's so smooth that it just goes down your throat and that that's what we, I aspire to have these wines have after. 10, 12 years, and we have all those wines.
0: Okay, is there? Do you have a favorite age that you like to drink your wines at?
2: Depends upon the region. I like old wine. I can tell you for a fact, I haven't drunk a Bordeaux newer than 1985 in ten years.
0: Really? Yeah.
2: And and uh, w- what what do I like? Well, I will I will walk ten miles to drink a, a Bordeaux from 59, 61. They're light years, sixty-two and sixty-seven. that Everybody bypassed. that are killer years in Bordeaux. Um, in, in case of my wine, I don't have. I've been around that long, but the ninety-six is great, uh, and and it's still strong. And it, it it you know it's got garnet on the edges, but it doesn't garnet color. But mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't um, smell. It's not starting to smell like it's old wine.
0: That's got to be so gratifying. So I, yeah,
2: I, the answer is yeah. I like old wine. I like yeah. old wine a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's got to be such a good feeling to know that you've made something that will stand the test of time.
2: And here, on this one, you've got higher acidity. Yes. And then at the end, you've got a tiny little bit of grip. There's still a little bit of tannin in this wine. That it's it, it it's it's uh, you don't even think about it until after you've had three or four glasses. You completely rinsed out your mouth with wine, and then you're most sensitive to tannin. And there's a tiny little bit of tannin at the at the end of this one that I. Taste. And that that I find refreshing. I, yeah. To me, a wine is too fat and not tannic. It's cloying, right? Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I don't care for it. I, right. I like a little bit of, I guess I feel like it's structure.
2: And
1: I love the way this wine lingers in my mouth.
2: That That's the other thing that if you don't beat it out of the wine, <clears throat> you get this very long aftertaste that, that just stays with you.
0: So, what would you say your goal with Claude de Tec is?
2: Well, my first goal was, you know, I'm I'm kicked the crap out of Burgundy, right? So if I'm a competitive <laughs> uh-huh. guy, and then and then after I made my first wines, then I realized California's hotter and fruitier, and if I take their exact grapes and use their exact barrels, my wine's still different. So then I go, okay, this terroir thing, there's there's something to it. Uh, I still I'm still a huge Burgundy fan, so. To answer your question, from some of the lighter years here, my 2002 is my favorite. Um, I like to go to a place where people know wine, and and we've got the bell ringers there. You got some big Burgundies, you know, Bomar. You've got some Burgundies that matter. <clears throat> and then every they all go in a paper bag, and I put one of mine on the table, and they all drink it, and some like this one, and some like that one, and then you ask the question, which one is a California Pinot Noir, and they don't get it right. So uh, my objective is um i won't say modest but but it's um limited in that i want to be on the table of the big wines and have everybody have a group of knowledgeable people say yep that's a big wine and i like this i like pinot noir and i like that wine
1: do you think that you're there yet
2: yes yeah the the, the 2002 is absolutely there the other thing i like is years. i don't like all years being the same you know I, i i like i like the wines being different I like, I like the same grape made the same way in the same year in, in vineyards that are a thousand feet apart be very different. I like that because I know the great wines are that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the magic of wine and what is so fascinating about it. And I know it's what holds my interest.
0: Yeah, it does keep it interesting. It's never the same. So are they making any uh, good wine in Wisconsin yet?
2: Well, I, <laughs> I know you're a few t- few times, your A few influence. times ago when I was there, I had a magnificent cranberry wine. Other than that one, there's nothing. <laughs> <but> oh, yes,
1: <laughs> those fruit wines. So when you were growing up, did your parents drink wine? What, was, what did they gravitate towards? were they drinkers?
2: Um, no, nobody I knew drank wine. Um, I remember <clears throat> my aunt and uncle owned what today would be called a dive bar it's a working man's bar in oshkosh and uh, and they did serve wine and the one the one that that always sticks in my mind well, they had the mogan david right that real sweet concordy wine mm. but the one the one the german people there they would drink what was called rhine wine mm-hmm. and the rhine wine wasn't from the rhine valley of germany it was it was a california knockoff it was horrible and then it was a little bit too sweet and a little bit too cloying so they mixed it with seltzer water so Rhine wine and seltzer was the only wine experience that i didn't drink it we had in wisconsin Uh, no no i i didn't get into wine till i got to california (laughs) what about beer i drank one beer when i was a senior in high school i was an athlete and also my mother would have killed me if i drank in high school Um, made up for it at dartmouth drank a lot of beer and today, um, if it's hot day, I'll drink a beer. <clears throat> yeah.
0: I know you like a lager, IPA. What's your thing?
2: Lager. And my, my favorite beer is Moosehead. It's from Canada. Yeah, yeah. It's got a, a little, little bite to it, a little hopsy to it. And uh, when I'm hot, got done running, that's, I, I want a beer. That's the thing.
0: So, TJ, tell us when you're not making wine. I think I heard you say you like to go to the occasional football game in Wisconsin. But what else do you do uh, for fun now that you're a retired guy? Which is, I had a hard time believing because you are so high energy. I can't imagine the term retired seems um, too uh, sedate for the kind of guy you are. <laughs>
2: well, my my current, what I did at Cypress Semiconductor, the company I founded in 1982 with five other guys, was um, make chips in the year of Moore's Law, where That was starting to conquer the world. So I I bailed out of there at age 69. So I had stayed over, you know, sort of standard timing. And I I, I like technology, but chip technology is getting very mature. Think about cars. There's a time in America when there are 110 car makers. And that's when anybody that had a wrench in a garage could bolt the parts together and make a car. And now there's like three or four, depending upon how you count the foreign car makers. And chips have gotten that way. So chips, uh, you know, you enter the chip business for with less than $100 million, uh, very sophisticated computer programming, uh, fabs, the, the the wafer fabrication plans to make the wafers. I, I built three of them myself, but today to build one matters. Is an absolute minimum of twenty billion with the B dollars. You know that's why we are the president talking. Oh, we need more chip plants. By the way, they don't happen when you throw money at them. They happen because smart people work on them real hard. <clears throat> so um, I started working in other technologies as a venture capitalist. Not, not, I also didn't want to go to Sand Hill Road. There's a road mm-hmm. right near my house mm-hmm. between Highway 280 and the Stanford Shopping Center where there's a trillion dollars in like three miles. Right. I didn't want to do that because I I'd, I'd, I'd find that environment cloying. So instead, I'm a, a kitchen venture capitalist. I sit in my kitchen, look out over my vineyard. Valida's a CFO, and um, real CFO. I mean, she, she manages um, assets in excess of $1 billion. And so I, I find entrepreneurs that I like, and I find technologies that are interesting. That's why I know about the uh, drone guys. And then I invest in them, and I help them. They typically haven't run companies and don't know what they don't know about running companies, and go on their boards. And then I turns out that's that's been. I was the CEO of a publicly traded multi-billion-dollar company for 34 years, and I've made more money just doing my kitchen venture capital by a factor of 10 in the last few years than I made in all my career as a CEO. Wow! And it's a lot more fun because I, I I don't have to do the heavy lifting. I don't have to go to work at six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't work, I, I, well, I don't work Saturday and Sunday. I still work Saturday and Sunday. So my new schedule is I work every day from the time I get up, but I don't fight traffic. And I, and I start working, when I get done with breakfast, I put that aside and start doing my work. Um, I work Monday through Friday that way. I work Saturday morning, Sunday morning. I do s- afternoons. Now, travel, um, I've always been a Green Bay fan because I'm from Wisconsin. So I now I have time to go to the Green Bay games, and uh, which is fun. I've got three restaurants in Wisconsin. I got my house. So uh, uh I have a little more time for leisure travel, but I think I work 85% as hard as I did when I was in it. differences. I get more I get enough sleep. I get to work out every day and um I I'm, I'm not fighting traffic wars in Silicon Valley. And
1: you're having fun.
2: I am. It, it is more fun um doing what I'm doing.
0: And you're not dealing with office politics and People management and all that sort of stuff.
1: Now, you glossed over, oh, I own three restaurants. So tell us about the restaurants. What are they?
2: First restaurant, I go to Oshkosh. My cousin says, we need you need to look at this deal. I'm thinking, okay, big deal in Oshkosh, right? Population, 66,000. So they take me out to the lake. The lake is Lake Winnebago. It's FYI, Lake Tahoe is 195 square miles, big, big. Lake Winnebago is 210 square miles. My house is directly on it. You can fish off my dock that goes 60 feet out into the water and catch fish off my dock. Wow. So he takes me to a place and says, um, we ought to put a restaurant here. There's a decrepit building there. We ought to put a restaurant here. So I look out, and they got a 30-boat harbor and a restaurant. So then I go, two and a half acres on the lake with a harbor. So how much do they want for this? And he looks at me kind of a, well... Now the bad news comes. And he looks at me and said, $237,000. So what? <laughs> so I bought it. He doesn't um, know California. <laughs> I bought the country club Did in Gosh. 128-acre golf course. And then I put a, a, a really world-class. I have to make restaurants that the people there will go to, right? So I knew they'd go to a world-class steakhouse. I found a, a, a chef in New York. And I conned him into, not conned him, I convinced him his life would be better. In Oshkosh, living on a lake, paying one quarter of the rent he paid for a 900-square-foot apartment, having his own car, and and working in a nice place, then, then taking the subway to work. So I then I, I got a really good chef. Uh, that's the other one. My, my third one is called Artie and Ed's. It's an A&W root beer stand. It was built in 1948, and this is not fake. You go to our, I was in Ardenes last week. I will be there again this week. You go there and you have high school girls uh, with roller skates on, yeah. and, and they go to your car and 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 huh. they and once a month they have old car day. So you have all these spectacular old cars parked there with their hoods up, so you can admire the engine that they've worked on. In How
1: retro it I is! Love it that. is,
2: and it's 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 real. It it, it is That's not awesome. It sounds like you know a, a movie. It, well, it looks like a movie. It looks actually better than uh, what was that you know the classic yeah you know it 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 actually looks American graffiti American graffiti it looks better than that one but but um it's real like those girls want the money because they're going to go to college next year and they're making money for the summer and uh and that's the place you go south of Oshkosh um
0: Wow, I mean, your life sounds like a movie to me. <laughs> the stuff that you've done and continue to do—it's just fascinating. And I don't think it's a stretch to say you're perhaps the most interesting person we've interviewed in wine. And we've been at this a long time. You're, I just—you're really certainly
1: th- the most innovative and have invented more things that we've heard about than from anyone else we've talked to.
0: Yeah, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your great wines with us, and um, and and explaining. In terms that I can understand, <laughs> what it is you're doing here and the innovations you've made, I have just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's really Thank you. Great. Now,
1: I'm sure our listeners would love to know how they can get a taste of your wines. Um, we should say that the drive to your winery, where we are, is rather—it's a nail bite, <laughs> a really twisty roads through. You know, the hills here getting up to... I
0: like Mary Orland, but with her behind the wheel, I branches. was like, you know, watching my life before my eyes.
1: <laughs> the drop-offs are pretty significant have, in some I have, places.
2: Uh, I have a party up here every year. This this cave turns into a fiesta. We have 200 people up here. And there's never a year that we don't have to uh, go tow somebody oh off the road. <laughs> You're right. So it turns out um, this is a production winery. And other parties... Um, there's nothing up here. So we're primarily mail-order, clotal attack, and, uh, and, and, and we ship. That, that, that's the primary way to get it. Um, we, are, we are in various distributors, um, but, you know, I can't make a statement here that's worthwhile for, you know, if you live in Oregon or whatever. Oh, one other thing. I bought a wine store in Half Moon Bay. Okay. There was <coughs> So Half Moon Bay, California mm-hmm. is a Portuguese shipping town, a fishing town built in the 30s. It's right where Highway 92 meets the ocean. And I went there for years because there's this woman who owned a wine store that specialized in Pinot Noir. She made it, you know, my store. Mm -hmm. And she also specialized in cheese. And her deal wasn't to try to beat the big Silicon Valley fancy stores. Her deal was she bought cheeses that went well with wines, particularly Pinot Noir. She had a spectacular uh, group of cheeses. So she retired. And I convinced her that if she allowed us to buy her legacy, then we would maintain it. So we did. So you got a main drag in Half Moon Bay, you can uh, buy our wine in, in our store. What's and, it called? Uh, it's called Half, very creative, Half Moon Bay Wine and Cheese. <laughs> 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 it's on Main Street. That
0: I can remember. <laughs> absolutely,
1: absolutely. And so you are maintaining her legacy of having cheeses that go well with Pinots.
2: We do. And during COVID-19, with all the problems, what we realized is um, people wanted virtual wine tasting. Mm-hmm. So we actually started a program where we take um wines uh, our wines and other wines and then they're really good at that store they've been doing it for years but they're really good at matching cheeses and wine every old cheese goes with wine but the fact is the exact right cheese and the exact right wine are heaven you know Mm -hmm. people talk about stilton and port right it's a combination Mm -hmm. to to die for well there's more, more many more combinations so we do wine tastings where we'll mail out a box and it'll have uh The right cheese, three or four or five wines and the right cheese. Then we, you know, Zoom in and and we have a Zoom meeting and we go back and forth. And those have worked out pretty well.
1: That's fun. And do you have a favorite cheese and Pinot pairing?
2: My favorite, um, I like uh, the gooey white French cheeses. Um, So I I like Brie and and Mm -hmm. the the cousins of Brie um, with Pinot Noir Mm -hmm. because they're rich, right? And the high acidity of Pinot Noir tends to, um, you know, clean them up.
0: Sure, I can see this totally cutting through a
1: beautiful triple cream.
2: Exactly.
0: Well, TJ, we're going to let you go and enjoy some wine and cheese, but we sure thank you for this time and sharing your wines with us today. This has been an absolute pleasure.
2: I've had fun. Thank you. Thank
1: you, and And cheers. Sip, sip, hooray. Yes, sip, sip, hooray.
0: Well, that's going to do it for our podcast today. Thank you for listening to Sip, Sip, Hooray. We hope if you enjoyed the show that you'll share it with your friends, your family. Spread the word about the Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast.
1: And you can do that by, one, going to our website, SipSipHoorayPodcast.com. There you'll see all the different podcast platforms we are on. And go to your favorite one and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode when it drops. And be sure to follow us on social media. We are at SipsipHoray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sip, Sip Hooray the number one on Twitter. Be sure to tag us with any photos if
0: you've tried any of these wines or been to the wineries we'd love to hear from you that's right we want you in the sip sip hooray family so do stay in touch with us and that's going to do it for us mary it's time to go out and eat drink and be mary absolutely we're going to
1: pop the cork and raise a glass (laughs) cheers to you mary orland cheers to you mary babbitt sip sip hooray sip
0: sip hooray